Welcome to Financial Frameworks. Financial Frameworks' goal is to increase your financial decision-making skills, building on what you already know. This podcast continues the main theme of the last podcast, building your savings and investment skills on what you already know, using your existing knowledge while adding tools and skills. It's not hard for me as a teacher to say build on what you know, but what exactly does that mean? It's not like I handed you a blueprint or a project chart or a diagram of dance steps to follow that is self-explanatory. Since one of Financial Framework's goals is to connect the 50,000-foot long-term view with concrete actions that cause the right things to happen, this podcast is about building on what you know with some specific tools and a useful overarching concept. Additionally, because it is likely that the savings and investment world will continue to be volatile for the near term, I think this is an excellent time for testing today's topics and incorporating them into your existing framework. Today, we'll cover two tools for value investing. Where do you start to estimate future growth and future value? And a beginning conversation on margin of safety. And then finally, why having a strategy makes a big difference. Value investing to me means two things. First, paying a price for an asset or stock for less than what the asset is truly worth. So it'll be worth more in the future. And then secondly, having a margin of safety, some factor or cushion that will buffer a short-term loss of value, having a margin of safety that can be demonstrated through calculations that are clear and are supported by solid reasoning. Today's podcast will describe one way to begin when estimating a stock's future value, and then, as I said, we'll begin our discussion of margin of safety. That will be continued in much greater detail in the next podcast. My final topic for today is how important having a strategy, which is more than a plan, is to the success in value investing. And then, as always, I've got a couple of questions for you. Okay, estimating a stock's future value. From my perspective, there are two starting points in estimating a stock's potential future value. First, I remind myself where I'm starting at. In my case, my three primary areas of interest and understanding are energy, finance, and information technology. I remind myself of this because it is very easy to be distracted by some bright, shiny, new stock that is touted on a number of sites. It's a new thing, it's glitzy, and it has tons of potential, but it is something about which I know very little, and I'm probably likely to continue to not know much about it for the foreseeable future. But it's interesting. So I remind myself, these are my areas of expertise. Then I review some resources that don't cost me anything, about those three areas, energy, finance, and IT, research areas such as the brokerage firm that I use, or Yahoo Finance, or internet headlines. And then occasionally I'll go to the local library and I'll read the Value Line Investment Survey. It's an excellent, unbiased source of information about stocks. It's in English. It has as much information Uh, in great detail as you want, but it also has a very clear, unambiguous and simple rating system that 
enables a person to look at a lot of information quickly. So after looking through this information, I'll start with a list of four to eight stocks that I will read about more specifically and in more detail. This phase of my research will focus on recent financial statements of my candidates, their annual and quarterly reports, maybe some specific research reports about them, but mostly it'll be the financial statements of my candidates. I will commit myself to two to four hours worth of reading, a small amount about the industry so that I understand the context clearly, and then I will note my questions, list my questions about the companies based on the information in the financial statements. That's my first point of entry for looking at a future value of a stock. The second, and it's parallel, because some of it happens at the same time, and I'm thinking about these things while I'm going through the first step of collecting data, I will now filter candidates by looking at three pieces of data. Number one, in my readings of their financial statements, do I see that earnings have been consistent or relatively consistent given COVID during the past two or three years? I look for this consistency despite the fact that we all know that brokerage firms display language that says past behavior is not necessarily an indication of future performance. While that statement is true, there are clues to be read in a company's financials that can indicate that the company is doing a good job of preparing for the future. They are building their capacity to continue earnings and possibly grow those earnings. That is why one clue to a solid stock is consistency of earnings. And then you look at how they're using their assets, how they're using their retained earnings to continue earning and growing just as they have in the past. So here's a current example that illustrates this point very clearly. Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines announced its earnings on April 13th. And while they missed analysts' estimates, and I will quote from Yahoo Finance, Delta CEO Ed Bastian told Yahoo Finance on Thursday that given all the uncertainty and some of the volatility that we see and what seasonally is our weakest quarter of the year, we were quite pleased and thought it was a real solid performance. Bastian also pointed out that not only was Delta profitable, but the underlying causes of that profitability showed strength in their business and in their operations going forward. Things like seat capacity, plane availability, staffing levels, future staffing levels, and anticipated customer behavior. All these things are in place for continued solid earnings. He was very clear about the whys of Delta's earnings so that you could apply that knowledge to the future. To put these qualities in more numerical terms, I usually start by looking at stocks whose PEs, price earnings ratios, are under 35 because of a point from Peter Lynch in his book, One Up on Wall Street, and I've taken that point very seriously. That is that stocks with high PEs and high earnings have a hard time sustaining those earnings. Earnings must be sustainable. So I look for reasonable PEs. Delta's PE, just for your information, is currently 16.63, which is less than the industry average. The second point of information that I look for is that the company's PE 
needs to be in the middle of the industry that the company is in, or better yet, below the industry sector average. Using an example from previous podcasts, and please remember this is not a stock recommendation, just a company that I follow because I think it's interesting for a number of reasons, that's Next Era Energy. Their symbol is NEE. Next Era Energy's PE for the, its trailing 12 months, you'll see the symbol TTM, that's trailing 12 months, is 37.6. The renewable industry average, according to Fidelity Investments, is 48.32. So NEE hits my objective. It's around 35. It's not quite under 35, but it's close enough. And it's well below the industry average. To go back and look at Delta Airlines, Delta's PE, as I said, is 16.63. And simplywallstreet.com cites the passenger airlines industry average PE of 86. So Delta's well below that. The third point of data that I look for when I'm beginning my search for future values of stocks is to estimate future earnings by looking more closely at the rate of the growth of earnings per share. We started out looking at earnings. We then looked at earnings in terms of a PE that is below the industry average. Now we'll look even more closely at the earnings per share. Before we do the calculations, let's think about the underlying logic for a minute. You want to invest in a company whose value, their earnings, their dividends, their stock price will grow in the future. The simplest thing is to look at the growth of its earnings. Over the last four or five or three years, have their earnings grown 10%, 15%, 20%? Have they been up and down and up and down? If they're growing steadily, that means the company is taking the money it earns and is using it intelligently to make more or better products and services that people will need, that in turn increases the company's revenue. And if they are efficient in producing these products and services, it'll increase their profits. That's something that you want to own a part of. So I look at earnings per share growth because calculating it on a per share basis rather than just their total earnings makes comparing small companies and large companies clearer. If you don't do it on earnings per share, you could never compare a company like Berkshire Hathaway with billions of dollars with a smaller or startup or renewable energy company like Next Year Energy that, while it's big, it's certainly not in Berkshire Hathaway's league. And you want to be able to make these comparisons because you're choosing between them. So I look at earnings per share growth on a per share basis. So now we want to ask, are earnings growing faster than the price of the stock? And the way that we make that comparison is to use a thing called the PEG ratio, the price earnings growth ratio. Calculating it is pretty simple. You simply take the PE and divide it by the earnings growth rate or the earnings growth percentage. So for example, Delta Airlines share price on April 13th was $33.51. Delta's earnings per share is $2.01. That gives us a price earnings ratio, PE, of 16.67. The earnings per share growth 
rate as of April 13th is 1667 divided by the change in the most recent quarters available for Delta Airlines. These numbers are somewhat dramatic as the airline industry is coming out of its COVID slump. Specifically, Delta's earnings changed from the first quarter of 2022 to the first quarter of 23. The earnings changed from a minus $1.23 a share to a plus 29 cents a share. That's a change of 123%. So the peg ratio is 16.67 divided by 123, producing a peg ratio of 0.17. Again, the logic is pretty simple. If you are dividing a smaller number by a larger number, that means that the growth rate is higher than the price of the stock. Pegs under one show that earnings are growing at a rate that warrants attention. It's growing faster than the price of the stock. Something good is happening with that company and that stock should be considered. Doing the same exercise for next year energy, NEE's PE is 37.6, which we noted is below the industry average of 48.32. So, so far, so good. Their earnings per share growth is currently 15.47. A 15% earnings per share growth rate, that's pretty solid. So you divide the 37.6 by 15.47, and the peg ratio is 2.43. I want a peg ratio under one. So this piece of information tells me that clearly their earnings are not growing as fast as Delta's. If I'm looking for significant earnings growth, next year energy is not my candidate. But I will look at other things before committing funds to this. Do I know enough about Delta and the air travel business? What was my first rule? I should stick to things that I understand. And airlines is not one of those things. But this is a very attractive number. Will I violate my rule number one? In terms of next era energy, I do have some knowledge of the energy business. And my next step is to research a 15% earnings growth rate. Is that above or below par for the renewable energy industry? My point here is that after calculating the peg, I don't rush out and purchase stock. I go over my thinking from several angles and collect as much information as possible before committing funds. I do this because I want to be careful with my money, which leads nicely in to the next point. We spent 20 or so minutes on earnings growth and how much more do you know about the insights that these ratios, price earnings and peg provide you than you did 20 minutes ago. I think your time has been well spent because this knowledge leads to other doors, other areas of analysis, which takes us into our next topic, margin of safety. In the next podcast, we'll spend 20 to 30 minutes on that because looking at it in a detailed way is very important. But for now, I'll introduce the topic so that you can have a sense of where we're going with it. Over and over and over again in financial frameworks, I have said that we need to balance growth and safety. Value investors work hard to make sure their investments are safe. 
To quote Benjamin Graham, the father of value investment, an investment operation is one which, upon thorough analysis, promises safety of principle and an adequate return. That's in the intelligent investor. But let's look at margin of safety in an introductory way as our balancing concept. Margin of safety. What if your selection is not validated by the market? Which is a fancy way of saying that the price of the stock does not go up, it goes down. How is your investment protected? The next podcast will focus in detail on this topic, but I'll introduce it here by presenting a method that Benjamin Graham used, and you can find a ton of descriptions of this method on the internet called the net-net method. I'm opening our conversation with Graham's concept because it focuses very clearly on a very definitive way of calculating value. It does it by subtracting all of a company's liabilities from its current assets. That information is contained on one piece of paper, the company's balance sheet. It's a good starting point for considering what safety for a company and investor is, because current assets are very easily measured, and now it gets you thinking about what's a liability, is this a useful liability, or should it not be on the balance sheet? On to strategy. I believe that strategy is essential to using one's plans effectively. So the question is, what is a strategy? And how can it make a difference for you? First, the difference between a strategy and a plan in practical and applicable terms, not fancy organization theory that will keep the professors busy for a couple of weeks with lunch breaks, of course. And at the end, you and I do not have a path of action, but we have a lot of concepts floating around. For me, the difference between strategy and plan is that a strategy is broader, it's more overarching and it's flexible in method while being inflexible in its purpose. For example, my purpose is to live a meaningful life. That's a pretty broad goal. And elements of my strategy have to do with health, money, relationships. I have plans, for example, about being healthy that are specific, have target goals and related tasks. The tasks may change. My exercising may change. My diet may change slightly. I don't have to do the exercises for several days, for example, because I'm busy cleaning up tree damage from winter storms. That wasn't originally part of the exercise plan, but it still fits within my strategy for physical health. Unless I were to overdo it and hurt my back or something, then that wouldn't fit my strategy. So for me, the strategy guides everything else. My strategy for value investing, another example, is very solid in its outline and its objectives. Steps taken when I'm executing the strategy may shift or the plans may be altered, but they have to fit in my strategy. For that reason, I recommend that you make the distinction that I do, and you have a strategy that your various plans all relate to and fit within. Your strategy has to fit your way of thinking. It has to make sense to you, so that you will repeat it and make it stronger over time. It also has to be based on fundamentals, so that when data or details change, specifics may change, but the strategy remains in place. I'll give you a couple of examples, and we'll start by looking at it from President Dwight Eisenhower's perspective. 
he certainly had enough experience in planning and strategizing to make the distinction. And then we'll finish with Admiral James Stockdale. The two men had very different experiences. They both clearly, they lived lives that were full and meaningful and well-lived. And isn't that what we want? Meaningful and well-lived lives. First General Eisenhower, he was commander in chief of the allied forces in Europe during the second world war as the man responsible for overseeing the invasion of Europe by allied forces. He was intimately involved developing strategies and plans that went into the D-Day invasion and what followed in the battles in Germany afterwards. That's a lot of planning. That's a lot of coordination. That's a lot of aligning of responsibilities to reach the overall objective. With all of that, Eisenhower once stated, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. I believe that's one way of saying that the specifics are beyond our control that are constantly shifting, but it is critical to keep the overall objective or the strategy in place to succeed through preparation. Now to Admiral Stockdale. His example is more personal, but just as relevant. Admiral James Stockdale was a naval officer who was prisoner of war during the Vietnam conflict. Admiral Stockdale was beaten and tortured, and he was held captive for approximately eight years. He was also a vice presidential candidate in 1992 and concluded his career at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Admiral Stockdale was profiled by author Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. In performing research for the book, Collins and his staff observed companies that surmounted significant challenges and succeeded outstandingly. In his words, in every case of severe challenges to the companies, the management team responded with a powerful psychological duality. On the one hand, they stoically accepted their current facts of reality. On the other hand, they maintained an unwavering faith in the end game and a commitment for their company to prevail despite those facts. My team and I came to call this duality the Stockdale Paradox end quote from Collins. So what is the Stockdale paradox? In the Admiral's words, quote, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be, end quote. To me, that is a strategy. It's bigger than a plan, and it's anchored in stone. That is why I believe you and I, every person, really should have an overarching strategy and one in which your plans for your investing and holding on to your funds fits. So I have two questions for you. The first one is with regard to estimating a stock's future growth. I have used two examples of stocks. Delta and Next Area Energy today, I recommend that you find a stock that you're interested in. Find the PE, won't be hard, and find the peg for that stock in the financial resources that you use. If the stock has a peg under one, follow it for two or three weeks to see if the peg ratio changes. 
If your first stock pick doesn't have a peg ratio below one, pick another one until you find a stock that interests you that does, and then follow it for a couple of weeks. I will do the same thing, and I will post my findings on financial frameworks and why I think this is a relevant exercise. My question regarding strategy. A big part of my strategy is sticking with things I understand. Based on our PEG research and general market information, and my use of the example of Delta Airlines today, Delta could be a really good buy. It's a solid company. But it is outside of my stated areas of expertise. What do you think I will do? A famous theologian once said that he could resist everything but temptation. I have several choices of action. What do you think I will do? And just as importantly, what would you do? Okay, the next podcast will focus on margin of safety and tying it to your strategy, as we did with finding stocks with growing earnings today. Thank you for listening. I hope that this has been useful and helpful to you. If it has been, feel free to recommend it to a friend or a colleague. I look forward to bringing you more financial framework tools that will increase your learning, which in turn will translate into actions that produce sustainable earnings that you hold on to. Mike Lee Hinn, Financial Frameworks. Mm-hmm.